Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. My guest for today's episode is Cab Grayson. Cab is Senior Managing Director of CBRE Global Investors. Cab has spent 41 years at CBRE in various forms, his latest role being money raising for the various pension funds above $3 billion in value. Cab grew up in Washington, D.C., and went to school at St. Albans, then on to Yale University after high school. Most of his career has been spent in Washington. Today, we talk about his family background and heritage in the region. We talk about his schooling at St. Albans and on to Yale. We talk also about that he has no real estate background or any really influences as a child in real estate and picked it up by accident and incident. He also learned when he came in that being able to help, not knowing much about real estate, asking questions and digging was the best route for him to learn. And then We talk a little bit about the company changes, CBRE going through many, many changes over his 41-year career, and then his move to Los Angeles and his return back from that experience. And then we evolve into talking about his family a little bit more in detail, including his two sons that are in the real estate industry. I've known Cab for about 35 years. He and I have shared stories and ideas over that period of time, and he's just a great person. And I hope you enjoy the interview. Cab, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. So, Cab, could you tell us a little bit about what you do at CBRE Investors? Absolutely, John. It's great to be here. It's nice to see you again. What I do is I work with corporate and public pension plans in North America, U.S. and Canada, who have $3 billion AUM or greater, total AUM, not real estate. And the reason for that is we've found that the ones smaller than that tend to have a very different approach. For example, they typically work solely through consultants. So one of my colleagues covers that group, and I cover 3 billion AUM and larger. So tell me what you do on a kind of a daily basis. Well, I travel a lot, as you might imagine. As I look at you, you probably one of the few people I know who's been to places like Topeka, Kansas, Jefferson City, Missouri, Lincoln, Nebraska, Albany, New York, et cetera, et cetera. I can speak with expertise that I've been to all those places, Tallahassee, Florida, on and on. And that's, of course, because the state capitals typically are, for reasons known to others in the past, are in markets that are smaller. They're generally not in Manhattan or, you know, St. Louis or Kansas City. They tend to be in more rural locations, which was a decision made years ago by others. But anyway, that's where the public pension plans are. And that's who our largest investors are. And we now, as a firm across the world have about $107 billion in real estate AUM, which makes us one of the larger, I don't know where we rank, probably in the top three is my guess. It's interesting that a brokerage firm would be that large in, in the pension advisory capital raising and investing. We were one of the first in, uh, 
I was not around at the time or not involved anyway, but in 1972 is when the real estate investment management arm was started. And people who were involved, you may know them, John, but uh, people like Vince Martin and so on, who now I think are fully retired, but ultimately after they left CB, went and formed TCW. It was the, the power of CB in the marketplace at the time that allowed for you know, the expansion of different businesses, I assume. At, at yes, the point. very definitely. But I, again, in 1972, I was graduating from high school, so I was not involved <laughs> in the decision at CB at the time. So talk a little bit about your, uh, your, your personal background, Cap. Well, as you know, I, I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad worked for the federal government. He worked for the Smithsonian. We or I grew up between 16th Street and Connecticut Avenue off of Porter behind the zoo. Their various friends referred to it as rock sewer, but that was probably a little <laughs> unfair. I mean, I was a lifer on the cathedral close because I went to Beauvoir and then St. Albans and then went away to college and went to Yale after that. D.C., as you well know, went through a lot of changes in, during the time I was there. It had some interesting changes, to say the least. I mean, in 66, I, I believe this is correct, that's when they had the uh, busing decision. That didn't impact me directly because I went to a private school, but of course it impacted the city a lot. And in 1968, we had the Martin Luther King assassination and the riots and so on. It was a very active time, to say the least. We had sirens more or less 24-7 and armored personnel carriers at the end of our street, all that type of thing. But that's so well known to many people. What were some of the, during your youth, what were some of the moments that you'll never forget in Washington? Well, certainly the, the, when King was assassinated... I heard about it and was riding home on the D.C. transit bus with two friends of mine who lived in the 16th Street area. And they said, well, there's some, something going on. There's a lot of stuff happening. And subsequently, they took pictures out of their, one of them in particular, took pictures out of his apartment window. And it was, you know, right out of Beirut, frankly. I mean, you saw looters and fires and policemen and soldiers. And it was, it was quite something. I think at the time, I didn't realize how big a deal it was. When you're a teenager, it just sort of sounds like another thing. And of course, the other big thing going on at that time and later was the Vietnam War, which if you lived in D.C., you were exposed to, not the war itself, of course, but certainly all the protests to a great degree. And there, you'd drive, I remember my mother driving me through Ward Circle one time, and the smell of tear gas was just overpowering. And, you know, we, I, at least I wasn't really aware of what protest might have just taken place. Again, I was think it was in eighth grade at the time, maybe seventh. Something like that, you just come across this in asphyxiating smell of tear gas. One thing, it's really unpleasant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not that I was directly involved, but anyway. It was a very interesting time in retrospect to grow up in Washington, D.C. Not all great, not all bad, but very interesting, certainly. You have a brother, I know. Yep. And you have a sister. I have well. a sister who's between us. I'm the oldest of three. My sister's 20 months younger than me. My brother's five and a half years younger. They both live in the D.C. area as well. So growing up with two siblings, uh, being the oldest, I mean, did you dictate what was going on in the family or did they follow your lead or how did, how did, you, how did what was your relationship growing up as kids? I, I think it was probably relatively normal. I don't think I was any great older brother. That was for sure. My sister, not exactly sure what year it was, but she ended up going away to school so I really didn't see her on a day-to-day -day basis. And then my brother, being five and a half years younger, when you're 12 years old, somebody who's five and a half years younger is in a completely different sphere. But I 
love and admire my brother and sister greatly, and they're wonderful people. Like I said, they both live in the D.C. area, so right. I'm fortunate to get to see them pretty often. What influences at, uh, at St. Albans, and then you went on to Yale University, Yeah. what did that have on you, on you and your life and your perspective? Well, I can talk about that. I can also talk about family, too, about my dad and mother in particular. Okay, good. Uh, maybe I'll start with that. My um, dad, unfortunately, died when he was 58 when I was 26, which was quite a shock, to say the least. My mother ended up having to go back to work. It was a, a very traumatic time for her. She kept a lot of the problems away from us, which I completely understand. But one thing I'll start maybe with my dad is that when he died, Canon Martin, who was head of St. Albans, at his funeral, Canon Martin said, I think I have this right. He said, this guy was the most decent man I've ever known. And I, of course, I have no way of comparing to the rest of the world, but he was an enormously decent guy and just a really good human being. Explain why. Well, in a lot of ways, I heard Gary, Gary Rappaport's podcast, and he said something that his father said, it's important to be a good man. And I could have heard that from my dad. I don't think I ever did hear that, but he modeled it in his behavior. And I can't tell you when he died, but also afterwards, I would have people coming up to me at random times who ranged from being the lowest ranking unemployed person to someone who was pretty high up in government saying words to the effect of your dad was the most wonderful guy I ever knew, most decent human being, just an unbelievable person. And, you know, in my eyes, I was his son. Of course, I'm a little biased, but he really was a wonderful guy. You know, I thought about, well, what in particular, besides his decency, first of all, that's a key thing. He treated people well, no matter who they were. I mean, as far as I could tell, if it was the president of the United States or somebody on the street, he treated them equally well. And I thought that's, a, that's something really hard to practice. We all think we can do it, but it's really hard to practice. But that's something I've tried to do. Did I, you see I, it firsthand? Oh, yes, many times, you know. And he, I mean, my father, I could talk about him forever. He was a physical fitness fanatic. He exercised twice a day, at least until he got ill like with cancer. Yeah, I'm, but I'm, he puts me to shame. <laughs> and I don't consider myself overweight, but I, I'm obese compared to him. He was lean and in great shape. I would say lean and mean, but he wasn't mean. But he did his Royal Canadian, Canadian Mounted Police exercises every single morning, which was push-ups, running in place, calisthenics, etc. And then in the afternoon when he came home from work or evening, he would do a variety of things, but frequently he would, t he would put on his old Marine Corps boots. He'd been in the Marine Corps during World War II. And he'd take our dog and they'd go run sprints in Rock Creek Park. <laughs> and at the time, it was, this was really before the jogging revolution. And to see a, you know, middle-aged male in Marine Corps fatigues. fatigues and boots sprinting in Rock Creek Park, I think was a little unusual. It was, anyway, that was among many memories I have of him doing it. And he was just a, a physical fitness fanatic was definitely true. He had two older brothers whom I knew well. And really one thing is our family grew up as sort of a clan because one uncle was unmarried until much later. And, but the other one, the middle uncle, Carrie, has four daughters, had four daughters. He's deceased now. And I'm still quite close to them as if they were my sisters, if you will. As you know, we had a family, have a family farm out in the Upperville Middleburg area. And on weekends, we'd go out there. 
And in the summers, uh, my parents would rent their house in D.C. My dad would commute from Upperville, brutal commute even then, and to the Smithsonian. And uh, so I'd be there with my four cousins, all girls. I was the oldest. <laughs> anyway, so it was, it, that was an interesting environment. But I will add that going into St. Albans, which is what, how we got started on this, my dad and his brothers had gone there for part of the time, and I think they'd enjoyed it. It had grown quite a bit. So it was just sort of, I, was ne- I never was asked. I just went. And honestly, St. Albans was, it was fine. I think it's gotten to be a much better school than it was. It was, I think, particularly in the lower school, it had ups and downs, but I enjoyed it in a way. But it was a lot of hard work. That's the thing I remember most, most about St. Albans was just no free time. And between athletics and academics, just endless work. There are a couple other things I'd like to ask you about. Your, sure. Your mother and your father were very strong environmentalists. Your father Good was point. president of the Audubon Society, apparently. Yeah. That was a volunteer job, but that's right. And your mother was involved in the, the uh, group out in uh, uh, Fauquier County yeah. that actually fought Disney, um, Disney yes. when they tried to come. Yes, that's all true. And my father was a fervent environmentalist way before it was in to be so. Where did that come from, Kat? I don't honestly know, but he developed a love of the outdoors. And I mean, again, we could tell stories forever, but one of them that a brief one was somehow, this is when I was either just born or maybe just after I was born. He went to the Fish and Wildlife Service and said, you know, there's a duck called the wood duck, which is grown, what used to be very populous in um, Northern Virginia. It's extinct now. How about you give me a permit to go raise them? And again, I wish I'd known him at the time, but he built a big duck pen out at the farm. It was a feat of engineering. Obviously, I can't portray this in the podcast, but if this was the ground, he built it so it would go six inches below, and then it went out six inches in each direction. So a weasel or, you know, fox digging to try to get in the duck would, (laughs) first of all, hit something going down. And then if he made it past that, there'd be something coming back up. Anyway, he raised wood ducks for years. Again, this was purely on his own. And it was a huge success. We would ban them, release them. And there were wood ducks all over the place. We ended up giving a whole bunch to the National Zoo, and that became their breeding stock and so on. So So he was, I mean, he was a real environmentalist. It wasn't some pie in the sky type thing. He was living it day to day. And again, more power to him. But he just loved the outdoors. He had terrific vision. And again, we're on a podcast, but he'd see something 200 yards away and say, oh my gosh, John, look at that. That's a a ruby-throated hummingbird. And you'd (laughs) stare out there and go, I just see a bunch of trees. (laughs) Anyway, phenomenal eyesight, and he could pick out stuff that you can believe, but just a wonderful environmentalist. And I think my mom really got it from him. But after he died, she went to work for Russell Train, who had been secretary of EPA. He was also my first employer. Then my mom married a guy named Charlie Whitehouse and really converted him, at least in my view, to being an environmentalist too. And my mother started, started or co-started the Goose Creek Association and uh, the Mosby Heritage Area, which is an educational for kids about all the Civil War stuff that's taken place in the uh, Piedmont area. And then also she and Charlie really were the two of the real maybe four or five guiding forces in terms of building up the Piedmont Environmental Council and also the fight to defeat Disney, which 
to me would have been um, a disaster for both that area, but also would have been a disaster for Disney, frankly, because I think if they'd built something and expected all that traffic to come out 66 on a regular basis, it would have been a fiasco. My mom, she was very much a lady, but she had a very, very stiff backbone and she knew how to fight. And literally on her deathbed, she woke up at one stage and said to me, she said, you know, Cabell, do you think people will remember me as somebody willing to lie down in front of a bulldozer? And I was like, yeah, mom, I think they will. (laughs) But, you know, you'd never guess it because she was very much of a lady, but she was plenty tough in her own way. Very persuasive. I also, in my research, learned that she was on the board of the Gunston Plantation. Gunston Hall, yeah. Gunston Hall, which was George Mason's hall. She was also very active, Not certainly not the only one, among many is at Stratford Hall, which is the Lee family plantation in South Rappahannock County. Yeah, exactly. River area. But on the, the George Mason side, it's actually not my mom. It's my father's side of the family is related to George Mason as a direct relative. And I want to say it's, uh, I think it's George Mason's mother. Anyway, I might, I'm a little fuzzy on that side. But yes, we are direct descendants on that side. But I'll tell you, John, I didn't have, my growing up, my family did not emphasize things like that particularly. Not that they were hiding it, but it just wasn't a big topic. But to me, what was fascinating or is fascinating is that my grandparents, grandfathers on both sides had these, in my mind, classic American-type backgrounds, and then my great-grandfather on my father's side had a fascinating background, without going into all the details, but my great-grandfather, a man named James Gordon, he was my grandmother's, paternal grandmother's father, emigrated from Ireland at 15 and ended up joining a brother in California, then became a mining engineer, figured out that it was potentially more profitable to be an engineer rather than actually doing the mining, made a lot of money. I mean, he was, became very successful, worked his way back. He was at the driving of the Golden Spike. He rode with the vigilantes. He ended up in Cincinnati, which is, I think, where my grandmother was born. Then, for some reason, came back to Washington. For reasons I'm not 100% sure when I say back to Washington, came to Washington. And my grandmother, again, my father's mother, was in one of the early classes at National Cathedral School. And I wish I'd known my, I mean, imagine the stories that my great-grandfather could have told in terms of Ireland, you know, the voyage over. I mean, being in the West in that era, he took his daughter around. His wife died at a very young age, so he took his daughter all around the West. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to just jump to other grandparents. Tell me about your other, your grandfather. Well, one, the other one, I'll just, as my mother's father was born in Blair, Nebraska, to a family with eight kids. His father was a uh, itinerant preacher, and they moved to Deadwood, South Dakota. And I mean, again, this is in, you know, uh, late 1800s. I think Deadwood have been an interesting place to, we all saw saw the, uh, what was it, a Netflix show or whatever it was. Buffalo Bill Cody, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of stories on that side too. But, (laughs) But my, so my grandfather's father died when the, my grandfather was somewhere in his teenage years. I don't know which area. My, so my great-grandmother had eight kids. She couldn't take care of them all. So she farmed them out to relatives around the country. And four of them were sent to live with a family in Tennessee. And then somehow they ended up in Pittsburgh. And my grandfather and his brother started an advertising company, which became quite successful. 
they basically ended up supporting some of their relatives. But again, think of the background. If you're born in Blair, yes. Nebraska, you end up in Deadwood, South Dakota. Then you go to Tennessee. Right. In the late, oh, and the other thing is one of his early jobs was he was a, I don't know how he learned to fly a plane, but he, was a, he spent World War I in France teaching French pilots how to fly airplanes. He said that was his, the job he liked the best. And I did know that grandfather. Unfortunately, I never knew my father's father, who we'll talk about in a second. But my mother's father, I did know him. And he was a character as well. Everybody was. But my uh, father's father, who's he's known as Admiral Kerry T. Grayson, he grew up in Culpeper County. His mother died when he was very young. I'm going to say year and a half, two. His stepmother, for whatever reason, didn't like him kicked him out of the house as a young man. So he went and lived, as opposed to uh, with his uh, father, went and lived with another family that he was not related to, not too far away, several miles away. But this was, again, post-Civil War Virginia, not exactly a thriving time. He became interested in becoming a doctor because his father was a doctor during the Civil War. And he also became interested in horses because his father would ride rounds to go visit his patients sure. on a horse with my grandfather on behind. It goes on and on. And I mean, some of this is, you know, get into family lore versus what may be actually written down. But my grandfather, again, quite poor, gets a scholarship, goes to college, gets to go to medical school on what must have been sort of like one of the, uh, I forget what they're called, but it's a GI type situation of where if you spend a certain amount of time in the military to pay back, they pay for your education. And again, this is where a story may not may or may not be true, but evidently he was on a troop ship and Theodore Roosevelt came down with some sort of stomach problem or something like that. They sent for the nearest doctor. It was my grandfather. He came and looked at him. President Roosevelt said, why don't you come work on the White House staff? I don't know all the details of this, but remarkable right place, right time type story. My grandfather ended up working for a number of presidents on the staff. And then uh, for Woodrow Wilson, he was his personal physician. And as you know from history, Woodrow Wilson suffered a series of strokes, particularly after the Paris 1919 peace conference. And to sell the League of Nations, he went on a barnstorming tour in a train around the country. You know, you didn't have podcasts and internets and things like that at the time. And I don't think radio was as widely utilized, to say the least. Uh, So he went on, but he ended up with a series of strokes, which really debilitated him. And then ultimately, because he, Wilson, uh, and I think he became much more dogmatic with during all these strokes, at least that's what history tells us. He effectively became almost bedridden back in Washington. But because my grandfather and Mrs. Wilson were determined to help him see his vision, and his vice president at the time was not terribly supportive, and I think the Congress wasn't, so they literally would more or less prop him up. And different senators or congressmen, when they came to visit, they would say, well, Mr. Coe, you've only got 15 minutes because he's having a little bit of a bad day. And he'd say a few words, and then the senator would leave. And again, it'd be a little difficult to pull it off in today's environment. My grandfather Again, I wish I knew him. He died in 1938. He died young, like my father, of cancer. Did but my your grandf- dad talk about him at all? Oh, yeah. My, grand- my father and his two brothers loved to talk about their dad. But my father's, one of his great regrets was that he didn't get to spend enough time with his father. My father was 17 when his 
father died. And I think, and I'm just connecting dots here, that probably much of the time that my father was a little boy, his father was at the White House. Right. And or when I say the White House, we're doing various other jobs afterwards because he became president of the American Red Cross. He worked for Franklin Roosevelt. You know, he had a obviously a very distinguished career. Sure. So he must have obviously had influence on your dad. Oh, yeah. His whole thought Huge. process of working for the government. And I think else. so. I, yeah. I, you know, I can't make that extrapolation, but I, I think that's probably true. But, you know, you assume that way. Certainly my grandfather was the one who got the family into the horse business. He was a very uh, an enthusiastic horseman. And there are various, I'm not a big expert. My brother is much more expert as is my sister. But there are a number of Grayson equine related health uh, programs that exist, mainly that were started by his friends that were named after him. I think I have that accurate. But in the horse business, the thoroughbred horse business, he was a pretty big deal for a while. Small world at times. So talk about your, your career at Yale University, why, why you went to Yale. And I'll just add at St. Albans, and this gets back to some of what my parents imbued me with, they certainly had the attitude that you weren't put on this earth to, to relax and just fool around. I uh, never remember a time not being working, either at school or athletics, I guess that's not work. But then during the summers, I was definitely literally farmed out to different groups, usually farm laborers and stuff like that. One thing that taught me was that's really hard work. Ultimately, I never wanted to have to be a farm laborer. Nothing wrong with it, but wow, talk about tough work. Working in 100-degree heat in Virginia summers is tough stuff. So you worked your farm out in Upperville? Did at the farm, but also at a lot of other places, too. I will say that at St. Albans, I think one thing, too, is my father and mother definitely, I mean, we certainly were not poor. We were actually very well off in many ways, but there was not a lot of extra cash. And I vividly recall how worried my parents were. I have several very distinct memories at at St. Albans of seeing them pouring over finances and being worried about this and that. So I had a a distinct feeling, and I suspect my sister in particular does too, that I had to to get through St. Albans and had to do the best I could, even if I didn't particularly like what I was doing. And that carried over. When I got into Yale, frankly, I had... Even though I knew my father had gone there, I had not the slightest concept that I would ever get him. I thought that would be hopeless. Because frankly, I had been a struggling student for many years at St. Albans, and that's probably putting it politely. I mean, I worked very hard, and I did okay, but I worked very hard, and I should have done much better. And really, the turnaround happened in my, started to happen in my mid through a 10th grade year when I met a mutual friend of yours and mine, Christian Miles. And he transferred from the D.C. public schools and he lived in Cleveland Park at the time. And I would frequently stop at his house on the way home and very frequently have a meal there. Christian and his family really turned my life around. I really? Mean, I've told him subsequently that his father and his family really saved my life. And that might be a slight exaggeration, but I was a struggling student through ninth and 10th grade. And I think partially just because I, by dint of hard work and just keeping at it, I started to improve particularly in English, where I'd been a very mediocre student. Some of what teachers had been trying to teach me for years started to sink in, and I started to do pretty well. But Christian also was very good at math. He is very good at math. By working with him, I started to do very well at math. 
And so my grades shot up, I think probably to the eternal surprise of my parents who watched me struggle <laughs> with things like that. And I'd also struggled with French a lot. This is something I'm going to come back to. But again, I literally got, I think, just two straight years, I got C minuses, which was literally the lowest passing grade. I think the only reason the teachers actually passed me because they saw that I was working hard. I don't think I actually passed. And so I had this image of myself as hopeless in French. And then uh, my parents got me a, um, a tutor, and that helped enormously. And I will say, and I think this is a life lesson I've taken away, there's different ways to success or to doing well in something. And there's not just one path. And I think that took me a long time to realize that well into my working career. But when I look back, the fact that I ended up doing very well at St. Albans in academics really was due to the fact that I just didn't give up and also that other people were there to help me, both St. Albans teachers, my parents, and also the Miles family as a whole. But anyway, when I got into Yale, that was a huge shock. And I was um, probably unprepared for Yale in some way. I was prepared well academically, but unprepared mentally in many ways. It, w- it was very hard, especially in my first couple of years. I, I just had no, t- no spare time. And frankly, Yale, my freshman year, a couple of the college, well, particularly my college counselor was not helpful. Uh, we don't need to go into vast detail, but it just, it made for an overall fairly miserable academic experience early on. Things really turned around my junior and senior year at Yale and uh, started doing a lot better. And frankly, I, you know, I've, I greatly value the experience. Your interest in real estate evolved? Starting that at that point, or when when did the real estate bug? Uh, you know, when I went to St. Albans, I don't think I knew an entrepreneur. Really, we I listened to the Gary Rappaport podcast, and he said every single person he knew in his neighborhood was an entrepreneur. And I, I'm, I'm sure I'm overlooking somebody, but my image at St. Albans of the other kids' parents: if you were successful, you did three one of three things: you were a doctor, you were a lawyer, or you worked for the government. And that's DC. That was my sphere of influence. I mean, I knew that entrepreneurs existed because I read about them in history books and, you know, whatever is Cornelius Vanderbilt or somebody like that. But I would have, if someone said, what do you do to be an entrepreneur? I would have said, I've got no clue. You know, the classic tabula rasa, the blank sheet of something. When I went to Yale, if things on that score didn't really improve, my senior year, I got to be close friends with a guy named Chip Tom, who you won't know because he's never been in the real estate business grew up in Chicago, Chinese-American, second generation. And his father had, again, uh, actually his grandfather and grandparents had come over from China. And his father had built a family business basically around Chinese food, both a restaurant and then in terms of import, export, and so on. And his father was a huge influence on me, just a wonderful man. Unfortunately, he died at 49. But like Christian's father, he was a huge influence on me. And I'm jumping around a little bit, but Christian's father, I remember telling a friend of his who was a dean of a small college, he said, you know, words to the effect of Christian and Cabell aren't going to go to some small school. They're going to get into a Yale, Harvard, Princeton because they're that type of quality. When he said that, and I overheard this, I was floored. The idea that somebody thought I was going to get into one of those schools was like you saying, let's go to the moon this afternoon. I mean, it was just incomprehensible. So the fact that somebody believed in me was hugely important. And I think one thing that I've tried to impart to younger people who come to me for advice is 
that things really are possible if you really want to do it. And again, and that, and again everybody says that. And I think my mother said it when I was young, but I frankly just didn't believe it. I just said, you know, I just felt like, hey, no one, you know, I just felt like I was struggling. I was always destined to eternally struggle and nothing would ever work out really well. <laughs> so when I've actually got a light that, wow, someone thought I could do more than that, it was huge, huge thing. But anyway, back to my friend Chip. I've had the blessing of making some really good male friends over the years. And that's, you know, they say that guys in particular are very poor at making good male friends. For whatever reason, I've been very, I've been blessed in lots of ways, but that was a way I've really been blessed. So besides Christian, my friend Chip Tom, certainly others as well, but Chip, Chip's father said, you know, you could, there's a, you could, there's a career in business. You could do this type of thing. And Chip's father had been very successful, again, come from certainly low, low middle class and made himself into a real powerhouse in Chicago. I really took that bit and ran with it, as they say in the horse business. Mm-hmm. And, but initially, when I got out of Yale, and we're skipping over one thing because I did live in Denmark for a year, but when I got out of Yale, I got a job with Russell Train, who again had been head of EPA. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I had a strong interest in environmental science. My major was history, but my minor, if you could call it that, at Yale was environmental science. I'd taken a lot of courses at the forestry school. I'd gotten a waiver to do that. So I thought, I want to be in environmental science. And I worked for Russ Train for a year, who's now deceased. Wonderful guy, fantastic thing, great intern experience. But after a year of that, I was like, you know, the reason I like the environment is getting out and doing things outdoors, not writing policy speeches and that type of stuff. (laughs) So I was really casting about. I was... I thought, well, I want to get into business, which is, again, sort of like saying, you and I saying now, let's learn Sanskrit. I mean, I had no concept of what it took <laughs> to get into business other than my friend Chips. His father had started a Chinese food business. I was fairly sure I was not going to get into the Chinese food business. But I thought, I have no clue. Well, my roommate at the time was a guy named that you know, Bill Janes. And, and Bill said, hey, you should come. You should go talk to these people at Coldwell Banker. Uh, give Bill's background a little bit for people. Well, he worked at Cole, I mean, he worked at Coal Banker too. He'd come from the Boston area, and any up anyway. Through he and I ended up rooming together with several other people, some of whom ended up in the real estate business. But Bill, at the time, was the only one. We lived in Alexandria together. A girl we knew had introduced me to him. I needed a place to stay. He said, "Oh, you can move into our place." So I moved in and. At the end of my internship with Russ Train, he said, well, you ought to interview with Coldwell, Coldwell Banker. Again, I would have said, I mean, well, say I knew how to spell real estate was about the level of my knowledge. Wasn't CB just gotten into yeah, the city? Just come in. I mean, maybe for two years type uh-huh. stuff. A man named Jim O'Brien, right. who'd been the head of the Los Angeles office, came here to open up the office. I certainly was not the first person hired. They hired a number of people who were successful IBM and Xerox salespeople, Bill Camp, Dennis Turner, Hal Bowles, Jeff Green, Bill Curtis, I'm sure I'm over, John McEvely, Steve Spencer, Ray Ritchie, although Ray Ritchie, Vern and John joined later. I mean, not way later, but, you know, after me, I I think after me, I'm sure someone will correct me. But, and if I have the story with Bill James correctly, and he, if he ever listens to that, he can correct me, but he went to an interview with Merrill Lynch the interview ended earlier than he expected. He walked across the hall. There was a sign saying Coldwell Banker. I think he thought it was a bank. He thought, well, I've, I'm available. <laughs> and so he walks in, interviews, and making a long story short, they ended up hiring him. 
and again, I, my memory sometimes faulty, but I think Bill was the first guy who was not a, a guy or woman who wasn't a salesman prior, had no sales experience that they hired. And I think when I came along, the fact that Bill recommended, and then I, uh, they had an eight-hour personality and sort of a combination personality SAT test that you had to take. And I scored well on the SAT part. And I think, frankly, it was because I'd just gotten out of college or been a year out of college, as opposed to these other guys who'd been you know, selling for 10 years and probably right. couldn't remember what they'd done. But anyway, gave me an interview with, at uh, Coldwell Banker. And I, literally, I saw the notes from the sales manager years later. And he wrote, this is the first time I've ever had somebody asking me what I do in business. <laughs> and because I didn't know what they did. Right. I mean, I knew Bill had That's said, well, funny. they lease and sell real estate. And, but again, that didn't mean anything to me. It was literally like speaking French or something. I had no clue what was going on. But anyway, they, for some reason, I guess because I tested well or something, they tested or one of they took pity on me or something, or they trusted Bill. They, they gave me a job and I worked as a, as a broker or salesman at the beginning, but what we called a runner, which was an, effectively an apprentice under a guy named Jeff Green, who had been a very successful Xerox salesman and who had been, was then successful at uh, Coldwell Banker. Also a guy named Jamie Kabler as well. But Which product type did you work? Well, they, Jamie and Jeff worked in apartments. And so that's what I did to start with, if you will. You know, I worked for Jeff. This is, again, faulty memory. I'm going to say maybe a year. And then I was put out on my own and, you know, again, struggling along. Apartment broker. Apartment broker. And I, uh, you know, did reasonably well. My sales manager at the time was, well, initially it was Barry Lamerson. He was very, very, he really was the key to my success, I think, in terms of apartment sales. Jeff Green also, but Barry really took an interest in me and helped me. He's a great guy. But then anyway, Ken McVeer, after Barry, Ken McVeary became the sales manager and Jim O'Brien was still the resident manager. And Ken or Jim said to me one day, you know, we're going to be opening an office in Tyson's. We think you should go, you should be an applicant to be the sales manager. Well, again, this is sort of one of these things. If somebody said, let's fly a rocket ship to the moon tomorrow, <laughs> I had never even thought of going into management. I mean, the, it was literally incomprehensible to me. They said, but it's not going to happen for a number of months, blah, blah, blah. Just think about it. And I was like, well, okay, fine. Well, I, was, I had met the woman who had become my wife at CB. She was working as a data researcher while she was getting her master's in business administration. And she said, well, you know, I think this management thing might be something you want to look into. And her dad said something to me along the line of, yeah, you really ought to look into this management thing. And again, I think without the two of them telling me I should look into management, I don't know. I probably never would have done it. Being a broker, I mean, was the instability of not having a steady paycheck a concern for you? Or, I mean, did you just have, were you fearless about it? I certainly wasn't fearless. I think the instability did play on my mind because, you know, there were definitely some ups and downs. But overall, I was making, for at the time, again, this is a long time ago, I was making quite a bit of money. And it meant a big, big pay cut <laughs> to yeah. go into management. Right. But it was a regular paycheck. But what was very fortunate is I was so young, A, I hadn't even gotten married, so I had no dependents. Right. You know, I could afford that type of thing. And my wife was working, too. So we scraped by, if you will. It turned out to be really a, a wonderful experience. And when the Tyson's office opened in this, again, memory, 
September of 82, I think. Ken McVeary was the manager. I was the sales manager. Now, I knew very well. I knew nothing about leasing office buildings, industrial buildings. I knew very, very little about leasing. Probably not much more than just the average guy on the street. Now, I knew something about selling apartment buildings, but no one else in that office sold apartment buildings at the time. So I, w- I thought, you know, I really felt like I was going to be a complete fraud. And let's see, this is 1982. <laughs> so I was 28 years old. And I, I literally was... How many said, brokers were in the office when it opened? 1982? Shoot, I don't remember. I'm going to say 20, and we probably hired another 10. But, you know, 15 or 20. And a lot of them, I mean, people like John McEvely, Steve Spencer, Howie Jensen. You know, these were Bill Camp. Dennis Turner. It's amazing. They were to studs. Me. It's amazing to me. In 1982, you opened the office, and I joined CB in 1983 in Oakbrook, Illinois, yeah. and that's how we met. And at that time, our office in Oakbrook, Illinois, and your office in Tyson's Corner were the top two offices in the country mm-hmm. outside of Los Angeles, which was the home of, of C- Colby well, Baker at the I'll time. I'll add to something else there, too. Well, so anyway, I go to be a sales manager, and I'm thinking to myself, these guys are expecting me to tell them how to sell, and I don't know anything about their business, or at least very little. So I really had a sense of panic, yeah. and I thought, this is going to be a disaster. And I thought, well, how's this go- how can I possibly make this work at all? And I thought, well, no one's going to, I mean, they're not going to expect me to be some expert, but my attitude, I was, there's two things I'm going to do. I'm going to try to help anybody I can. Not going to come across as an expert because I certainly am not. But if they want help, I'll give it. And the second thing is, I'm going to bust my butt. And I said, you know, I'm going to be, if not the last person to leave every evening, pretty darn close. Now, I'm not saying that's a great approach. I think because family tends to suffer in that type of situation if you do it too much. But I can honestly say I work extremely hard as being a sales manager. So what, what was your impression of the role that you played? As a salesman, were you like a coach to the brokers? Or well, clearly, I wasn't. I wasn't going to tell them how. I mean, Ken McVeary was the head guy. There was no doubt about it. Right. And uh, and Ken was very good. Did you learn a lot from Ken? I did learn a yeah. lot from Ken. I learned a ton. He was really he was excellent in lots of ways. But also, I you know along the way, I sort of figured out some stuff too. I mean, here's an example. I was supposed to. We were supposed to have a training class either once a week or once every two weeks for the newer brokers. Well, again, the idea that I was going to train people in something I knew very little about was obviously foolhardy. So I would go ask people, again, the McEvillys, the Spencers, the Bill Camps, okay, who here knows something about space planning? And they would go, well, you know, Davis and Carter, you know, Lena Scott, that, they're the experts. So I thought, okay, I'd call them up. Hey, would you be willing to come in and teach a training class? Well, I'm guessing they would say, Hey, this is an opportunity to spread our word. We'll come in, explain it. And then I'd get some of the brokers. I mean, I'd go to, I mean, I went to Steve Spencer one time and said, Steve, look, leasing office space, what do you do? And and he said, well, look, you know, and I said, look, would you come in and tell people what you do and why you're successful? And most people, including myself, are willing to talk about themselves. And a Steve Spencer came in and he would go through it. I'd go, I'd be taking notes right and left. I mean, I was taking notes right and left. Some of the stuff he said, I thought, well, I never thought of that. I mean, he would say, use a, you don't have to do it these days, but, you know, you'd use a, a slide rule and stuff to measure what the, you know, the soffits should be in a window and all. And I was like, wow, that's a really good idea. Well, the, in general, the feedback, I think, to Ken 
and to other senior people was very positive that I was doing a good job as a sales manager. After roughly a year and a half of that, Ken's boss, I think I have this right, Boyd Van Ness, I think I have this right, he said, we think we need to have a, a managing director for investment sales for the East Coast. And I said, well, that would be great. I mean, you know, it's a big step up and all this type of stuff. But I said, you know, I really know about apartments. And he said, nope, we're going to hire another guy to do that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, here we go again. I knew something about selling apartment buildings. Uh-huh. But again, I'd never sold a, well, I'd worked on selling a shopping center, you know, but I didn't pretend to really know it. And again, the idea that I was going to be teaching people, I was like, huh, this is crazy. Anyway, they said, well, you want the job? This is it. So I said, okay. So I was then covering, I think I started out just covering the Northeast and then they included the Southeast in my assignment. But I remember vividly that the, I said, well, let's look at the statistics. Let's see how many this, the Northeast has sold of investment properties. Turned out they, the year before they'd sold two. That was not an impressive <laughs> track record. So again, I just took the attitude, I'm going to help people. And I'd work with people like Jeff Dunn, who's very successful and so on. And again, if you take the attitude, I'm just here to help you. If you don't want my help, that's fine. But if you'd like me to do something, so I'd go call on different owners. I'd go call on different buyers. I'd try to have meetings. I put together an investment newsletter and I'd send it out to all our brokers and so on. And the first year, we went from two sales to 19, which was obviously a big increase, but again, not very many, but still it was a big increase for the time. And it kept on growing. And after about, and I loved that job. I mean, I hated the travel because I was just traveling like a maniac, but I loved the job because you literally, you didn't have any bureaucracy. You literally came in and said, John Coe, because you were an investment salesman too. That's right. John, how are things going? Where do you need help? What's going on? And John would say something like, you know, hey, Mr. Big, I've been pursuing him for three years. And I'd say something like, well, let's call him up and And I'll say I'm the guy from DC or wherever. Anyway, it worked great. And then I, uh, I'm skipping over a lot, of, a lot of details. I find out from Ken that he's leaving to go to Charles E. Smith. And I thought, my wife, she said, you know, it'd really be great if you weren't traveling constantly. We right. just had a baby. And I thought, well, that's probably a good point. Blah, 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 blah. And I thought, <laughs> this wow. This is 1985? Yeah, this is 1986. 86. And I took, at least I started the job in 1986. And again, here I am, the resident manager of this group of people who I did know pretty well. Now, one huge advantage was the fact that my wife, having worked in the CB office, knew everybody. Everybody. So instead of being some new guy from Des Moines, Iowa, or wherever, first of all, they knew me, which probably was a mixed blessing. They liked my wife, so that was an overwhelmingly positive blessing. And the general social atmosphere was positive from the get-go. And the other thing is that you know, that whole rest in Dulles, Tyson's Dulles corridor was just starting to oh, really yeah. take off. And the people I mentioned, John, Steve, Bill, Dennis, et cetera, et cetera, Howie, new people like Bob Shue, you know, just were taking off. And I mean, I think I did a real good job, but it wasn't because I knew more than anybody else. I clearly didn't. I would have probably been the last of the group who did. But one thing is, I, and again, a lot of this I learned from, I really learned all of this from other people. I didn't sit in the office. I literally went and called on the owners or the other or the people or the clients that we were dealing with all the time. And if they had a beef, so they got to know me pretty well. And the office did tremendously well. Again, I think 
really, it was more of a factor. I didn't screw things up. I was helpful, supportive, had a right attitude. I certainly wasn't the smartest. I certainly didn't know more than even any of the brokers in the office. But because the market was strong and we had a lot of good people, the office did tremendously well. And Ken McVeary really helped. Jim O'Brien first, then Ken McVeary, certainly Barry Lamerson along the way. But Ken and Jim really helped build that Northern Virginia leasing, land sale, ultimately building sale, tenant sale, that business up. And I benefited enormously. In the two years, two and a half years I was the resident manager, it was the number one office in the country the whole time by profitability. And again, due to the group we had. And we had a a great time. I mean, the business was rolling and we had some great social times too. We had wonderful parties. At least I thought they were wonderful. (laughs) Hopefully everyone else did. And it tended to be sort of a big family. And John, you've asked me why I stayed at CB so long. Really, most of the time, every few years, I was getting promoted. And I would, they would generally be promoting me or offering me a promotion before I th- even thought I was ready for it. So in most cases, I was like, well, yeah, if you think I can do it, I won't get into all the names. But what happened in 1988 is I'm looking at the parent company now. They were acquired, they had been acquired by Sears Roebuck. I don't remember what 1981. Yeah, that's fair. But in 19, let's say 87, Sears's pension plan agreed to give, my recollection is $300 million of seed money to buy properties through what was known as Coldwell Banker Investment Management. And I, I'm, again, I might have some details wrong, but that I'm sure is fundamentally correct. And so the head of that group, they had finally decided that they were allowed to legally really invest pension fund money. There was a period where they thought they weren't because of the relationship with the brokerage company. So it had been effectively dormant. I mean, they had had owned and operated properties, but they hadn't bought any for years. And anyway, with the Sears $300 million, they needed a head of acquisitions. They talked to a bunch of people. For whatever reason, it didn't work out. My, I'm, expect, I, I'm guessing that, they, that some of those people who are big names in the industry turned it down because they weren't willing to pay enough money. They ended up with me. They approached me and they said, well, we really think you ought to do this. And I said, well, you know, how much would you pay me to do this? They said, X. And I said, went back, talked to my wife. And I said, nah, that's crazy. And that you could move out to Los Angeles too. Well, the story, they, they, I said no twice. And they kept coming back to me. And each time they upped the ante somewhat, not that it was a huge sum, but it was certainly a lot more than I was making. So lo and behold, in July of 1988, I moved to Los Angeles. My wife and then newborn son. Did you have two of them? No, not at that. No, the, only, only Paul, whom you know. Right. And he was uh, two at the time. And so I move out to Los Angeles in July. We didn't sell our house till October, so they moved out October 2nd. So there are three months where I was, in effect, well, living in Los Angeles, commuting back to D.C. It was a little chaotic. And we went out and started buying properties. And uh, with that money, that's October 2nd, 1988. Halloween, as you know, is roughly October 31st, 29 days after my family's moved out. It's whatever that is, four months after I'd started. Sears announces they're selling Coldwell Banker 
Allstate, you know, the whole Sears financial network. Well, here I've just moved. I've moved my wife and young son, sold our house in Arlington. And my first thought was, I'm going to get fired. And because I thought, and over the next, you know, they didn't, the sale didn't occur overnight. It took whatever, I don't know, six months or something like that. But in the meantime, I'm really thinking, and I'd paid a huge price for a house in Los Angeles, as you know, real estate market, stuff like that. So I was really nervous to put it mildly. I mean, because I had a huge mortgage and I thought I wasn't going to have a job. And I knew I didn't have a job back in Virginia because they had hired a new manager. And also the market was starting to tank. You may recall 1989. Yes. Some of us with thinning (laughs) hair (laughs) recall those times vividly. Yes. I mean, again, making a long story short, I was part of the group at CB, at uh, Coldwell Banker, that put together an offer. This was uh, certainly run by our CEO, a gentleman named Jim Didion. But he included me in the mix, which was very nice. And that gave me a little bit of an education in terms of how Wall Street looks at deals like this. And our bid did not succeed, the company's bid. We were outbid by, among others, a group called Carlisle, which you know well. Dan Daniello, Fred Malik in particular at the time. Bill Conway and David Rubenstein were involved, but Fred and Dan were the two key guys at the time. And they acquired it, and they, I think they would say they paid too much money. It was an extremely interesting experience, and I was extremely nervous because I thought, we're, you know, we're going to get terminated here. I mean, there were rumors in the marketplace that we were going to go bankrupt as a firm and blah, 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 blah. Wow. So it was quite challenging. Trying not to go into too much detail, I was very lucky also to make a very good friend, Scott Tracy out there, not a guy, he's an LA guy, but not from here. One day, Scott, and again, I'm skipping over some details, but one day, Scott and I are summoned to go meet with our boss, who was the head of the investment management group, and Jim Didion. Well, as you may know from Jim, Jim was not a person you would take a meeting with lightly. And we thought, oh, bleep, this is, you know, we're going to get fired here. So we were going in to meet him. And our boss, a guy named Tad Jones, great guy, wonderful guy, I worked for him twice, said, you know, that he really wanted to do this other area. And Jim wanted to talk to us about running the group. Well, I was like, you know, (laughs) I mean, again, there's a lot of details here, but we were, again, going in expecting to be fired. And now we're being offered a promotion is a different, you, you go but of course we were going, oh my goodness, because the market's tanking. And I mean, we weren't, we weren't thinking, oh boy, this is the land of milk and honey now. And again, I'll skip over a few details, but Scott and I basically said, well, what the hell are we going to do? You know, we're losing money. Our parent company, Sears, is selling us in the process of selling us, and we're not going to get any more money from them. I mean, you know, we're out of luck. I could use stronger terms, but, you know, we were literally were sitting in a room together going, what the hell are we going to do? And effectively what we did is we said, well, we got to go back to all of our investors. Many of the investors did not like that group at all because they hadn't, they'd sat on properties for years because they didn't want to sell because that would mean that all the people were out of jobs. In any case, we um, went back to all the investors and effectively said, look, we're new here. We know you're mad at us. We're going to go ahead and thoughtfully sell assets, which is sort of almost an oxymoron. 
And most of the investors were like, yeah, that sounds great, but we don't believe you, in effect, you know, in a polite way. And then the other thing that was really challenging at the time is we were told, you're going to have to cut your costs quite a bit. Well, that means cutting people. And, and that's, I've done that, unfortunately, more than a few times. That was brutal. I mean, a, a, a number of the people that we terminated were good people. They were just in the wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. How did you handle that, Ken? I mean, not just there, but also as, as a I, as You a know, I, I don't know that I have any great approach. I really tried to empathize with people. I probably took it too personally because I could, as you can guess from my comments, I could have seen myself in those shoes sure. any number of times sure. as a salesman, as a broker, as a manager, as a fund, CB fund guy. I could empathize because I could see myself. And, you know, when people you just say this, start to break down and they talk about losing their house and, you know, divorces and all sorts of it's brutal. It's really brutal. But I will say, I think we treated, under the circumstances in that situation, we treated people about as well as we could. You know, others may disagree, but we tried to, uh, Scott and I negotiated with our boss, our CEO, the company CEO, about, you know, enough period of time where we'd be paying people their normal salary and that type of thing and try to help them get new jobs. But it was a really bad time in the industry. Really bad. You know, 1990, that was terrible. It was horrible. But anyway, uh, Scott and I, I mean, you can tell it's an emotion. It was an, it's still emotional for me. But anyway, when we went back to those investors and said we were going to sell properties, we literally started to do it. And when we met with uh, investors and said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Pension Plan, we've sold the ABC property, we've sold the CDE property, we've sold the FEG property or whatever. And we're also got, we're doing something with this one and we're holding on to this one for that reason. They were like, oh my gosh, these guys are actually doing what they said. And Scott and I, and another guy named Vance Maddox, who's very, yes. I'm still close to, he's very involved, he's very high up now at uh, CBRE Global Investors, the present firm, basically went to three investors, said, we have this idea that according to Torto Wheaton, whom you will call as well, research group. Yeah, exactly. Bill Wheaton, Ray Torto, very capable. We work very closely with them. Torto Wheaton basically said, and I'm showing up here, is that, hey, if there's no new office buildings built for the next, whatever, five years, even though people like David Shulman were saying, you know, we have a 50-year supply. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, and because it was, you know, there was no take-up at the time. But Ray and Bill said, just because of obsolescence, there's going to be demand. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying, of course. But the two of them, we took them, basically Ray Torto, on the road with us, met with any number of investors. We got three of them to say, okay, we'll give you some money on a, a non-discretionary basis, I might add. Of course. The first deal we did, at least this from memory, was a deal in Detroit, Michigan, of all places, did very well. And long story short, we were off and rolling. Now, we'd gone way close to going under. And so I'm not saying it was all milk and honey, but we were on a roll. So you were living in Los Angeles at the time. Yep. And you displaced from your lifetime home of Washington, D.C., you're traveling all the time. Yeah. Your wife is home with one, maybe two at that yeah, point. Because our second, second child was born in Los Angeles. Your, your personal life had to have been pretty challenging at that moment. It was. And also because what was uh, I mean, my poor wife, Susan, when we moved out there, 
you know, we joined a newcomers club like you do in anything. Almost everybody we met in the newcomers club lost their job because the recession was hitting. Right. So we had to make all new friends early, and that was challenging. Plus, when she was pregnant with our second child, she was confined to bed rest. So here she oh. is, <laughs> new place, 3,000 miles away from where her adopted home. She's on bed rest. There's no cable TV. I mean, that sounds like a minor point. No cable TV means you're literally watching, you know, NBC, CBS, and Fox yes. or whatever it was in a house that's under on renovation, and she has no friends. And, and a two-year-old boy. Yeah, who a high-energy two-year-old boy. That was really tough. I really feel for her. I, and she grew to hate Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and of course, then you added, we had a few events in L.A., mudslides, fires, Rodney King. Oh, my goodness. And, I mean, again, I'm laughing now. It wasn't funny at the time. You know, the Rodney King riots, they weren't confined to one little area. It was all over the place. I don't mean that I was personally threatened or something. That was not the case. But the towns not too far away from us were definitely feeling the impact. There were police everywhere. I was like, do do riots just follow me around? (laughs) But I mean, I shouldn't joke. I mean, it was obviously very serious stuff. You know, I won't get into all the details of that, but it was a really challenging time to live in Los Angeles. Ultimately, I wanted my sons to grow up in DC. La Cunada, which is a, it's a suburb of Los Angeles near Pasadena. Wonderful place to raise a family. Wonderful place. But I always felt like I was away from home. And of course, Susan was very keen on moving back. My timing probably wasn't really great, but in uh, 19, the beginning of 1995, we moved back to D.C. And again, I really didn't plan this out a whole lot. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure. Anyway, the company approached me and said, we know you want to move. You know, that's fine. We don't want to lose you. This was, again, Jim Didion, my CEO boss, which whom I greatly respect. And then he had a guy who worked for him named Dick Klotfelder. They were both, you know, very decent guys to me. And they said, we, in essence, are going to create this job back in D.C. as where you'll be sort of a regional manager in the brokerage company again. So I thought, well, you know, that sounds pretty good. I know a lot of people back there, and I have a lot of friends. Unfortunately, what happened while I was in Los Angeles is a number of the brokers I knew left. That was very unfortunate. But anyway, I did that regional job for a while. A couple of years, I worked for, I worked with Bruce Bashik. I worked for Chris Ludeman. He was sort of our senior partner. You know, I had a a great time with those guys. I view them as good personal friends. Let me stop for just a moment and go back to your time in Los Angeles and your relationship with Jim Didion and, and some of the senior management there. I mean, at some time, Cabot, if you had not had this desire to move back to Washington, do you think it's possible that you could have been on the, on the, on the train because of your success yeah. at the CB fund? You could have been potentially Jim Didion's successor at CB. Is that a possibility? Possibility, sure. Likelihood, probably not. Was it politics? I think I would have been, you know, uh, I, there was a very good chance I would have had a, a senior position. I, I was offered the job of running the CB Mortgage Banking Group, which, I, I mean, uh, again, I probably wouldn't have done, I probably would have had a challenge there too, because I'd never been a mortgage broker. But I think, you know, I, yes, my, for the foreseeable future, my way was paved, if you will. From a career standpoint, it was certainly foolish to do what I did. And 
honestly, I was shocked at how much CBRE had slipped in this area. You know, I knew people had left, but it was a cold shock of reality. Interesting. To come back and not be a top dog. If the you kingpins. Yeah. But anyway, hard Do you to have say. a perspective on what happened? I don't really. I mean, I, I have, you know, right. you, I, I know something about it because I obviously had a lot of friends among them who left. I was doing something entirely different and the marketplace was tanking. So, you know, maybe I would have done the same thing if I were in their shoes. So right. I, I don't really, it's hard for me to say one way or another. Working with Chris and Bruce was great. Oh, Dick Mannequin. Steve Gasway, Dick Mannequin. This is here in Washington. Yeah, Rick Davidson. Great people to work, all of them nice people. So what did you do when you came back exactly? Well, they had this sort of, there was, I was, the, for the Baltimore-Washington region, I was in charge of institutional properties, which included sales, mortgage finance, that mortgage brokerage, that type of stuff, if you will. And, uh, you know, it gave me a, a, a good opportunity to get back into the marketplace. After, and I'm now my memory fades, but I'm going to say, Maybe two or three years of doing that, I was offered the job again of running investment sales in the East, which, of course, I had done before. It was a totally different job because the market had totally changed and it was completely different, if you will. But I took over that job and enjoyed that, worked for a guy named Greg Vorwaller. And one of my colleagues was a fellow named Mike McMenemy. And I told Mike at the time, this was after he had been there for several years. I followed Jim Reed in the position that Jim had had back here. And Jim took over Europe or EMEA for the brokerage company. Or, this is I say 1996, company. 97? <laughs> yeah, probably into the 90s. I don't remember the Was exact. CBRE a public company at this point? When did that happen? That's a good question because... We were a public company, became a private company, became a public company. Became, right, you know, we went back and forth a couple times. But the, the Carlisle Group did take the company public. And, a lot, and that actually, I want to say, I think it was a pretty successful effort. I, I mean, the Carlisle, company, uh, Carlisle Group, I think, made pretty good money. And I think and a number of us who invested in the CB stock did well, too. But anyway, I digress. And the, uh, when I was, so I was running investment properties for the East, Mike McMenemy started a group called the Institutional Group, where he took all the brokers, the sort of senior investment brokers, and they made them sort of a superstar institutional group. And then Mike did that for, I'm going to say, two and a half years. And then he left to go be head of capital raising at CBRE Global Investors. And I remember... I, I had talked to him once because I think very highly of Mike. And after whatever, let's say two and a half years of me doing that, he approached me at a PREA conference in Boston and said, you want to come back to investors? And I said, well, Mike, you know, I'm not moving back to LA. And he said, no, 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 you can live anywhere you want. I was like, hmm, this would be interesting. <laughs> Talk about a weird career path. And so I said, yeah. And that was in 2007. And that's, uh, so I've now, I mean, it was September 2007. So we're getting on towards almost two years, or so 12 years in that position. Well, I mean, it's obviously changed and morphed and stuff like that, but effectively the same thing. And one thing that appealed to me a lot about that 
is as opposed to being a manager, I would be a producer. Now, this is in my mind. I mean, I've still paid a salary and stuff like that and still right. get a bonus. Right. But as opposed to supervise, when I had run the institutional group and been in charge for the whole country, you know, I, not that I supervise everybody on a daily basis, but, you know, you have a couple hundred people ultimately reporting to you. Here, really, it was just you and what you're doing. And Mike deserves a lot of credit for having the vision to see, because he really took over something that had not existed before. It had been, the capital raising had been sort of on a, you know, the, the portfolio manager going out and looking mm-hmm. for capital. And Mike made it more of an organized, truly institutional approach. And I don't know what we raised the first couple of years, but it was a lot less than what we raised now. But last year, I think we raised $13.3 billion, And I think we'll exceed that this year. That's globally, not just me, but the whole team. That business interests me in that here we are, CBRE now, the largest commercial brokerage firm in the world. And so if I'm a pension fund and you deal with it every day, they're Mm -hmm. saying, wait a minute, why should we give money to a brokerage firm? What makes you so special Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody who focuses on pension advisory work that has an investment background and that's their their thrust? We used to get that question a lot, but we don't much anymore because I think we've proven that CBRE Global Investors is maybe publicly owned, like CBRE, the parent company, but CBRE Global Investors is completely independently operated. And people like me or my colleagues, counterparts, superiors, et cetera, are all compensated on how we do, Global Investors does. If the CB stock, because it's public, as you know, goes up by a factor of three, that's not going to benefit us. If it goes down, it shouldn't impact us. What the relationship does give us is access to information and resources that I believe is unparalleled anywhere. Obviously, some of our competitors, I'm sure, will disagree. But to be able to access the resources, because we're the, generally the largest client or close to the largest client every single year. So we get great treatment from the parent company, to say the least. And the information that we get is phenomenal. And it's not just what are vacancy statistics and take up and that type of thing. But, you know, you the type on of the thing. Ground absolutely. Information. Tremendous information. And it really helps. And a lot of deals that we buy are off market, candidly. Now, our competitors will say, well, we can access the same people. And that's true. But it's different when you're part of the same company. So, the, you know, the brokers, is, and I was a broker at CB. Sure. And, and I was too. The fund, the fund existed even when I was a broker. Sure. You know, the question is, do you, do you take the deal to the fund mm-hmm. if you had a deal, a listing? And why would you do that as opposed to, I mean, wouldn't the other investors that you take to, wait a minute, you're not going to, you're going to let them, your own company outbid me? Or, I mean, were there issues well, with that with the brokers or not? I think in the past there were early on that perception. But what's happened, again, this is entirely my opinion, what's happened in the past 10 years is that brokers, whether they're JLLs, you know, Cushman Wakefield, it's Eastdale, whatever, they recognize we're a big buyer and a big seller and a big financer. So we sell through all of those companies as well. And in general, if somebody brings us a, Bill Collins brings us a deal, unless there's some really unusual circumstance, we're usually going to sell that property through them too. And in many cases, we're going to be more active because we're big. We have a lot of resources. We have a lot of capital. We can do deals that other people can't or won't do. So does it become a policy that not only do you want to treat the CB brokers equally, but maybe you might give other people 
Yes, we do the give the benefit of the doubt. We do give other perception in the marketplace to some extent. Uh, yeah, it's not just perception in the marketplace. I think really it's more because in the investment sales business, particularly as you know well, you and I having both come from that side, if you sell to a buyer and that buyer won't consider you on the sale when you flip it, eh, you're definitely that's not going to be the first buyer you go to. I mean, you, that's just a fact in the in the business, but. The other thing is, I think what happens also for us among the CBRE brokers is they know we'll protect them. And there are other, some of our competitors will protect them too. So I'm not saying we're the only ones. Right. But so we see a lot of off-market deals because of that. If it's John Coe and he's leasing that building over there and he thinks, you know, I know the owners. They're going to sell this property. Right. They haven't told me so. We don't have a listing. A lot of times... That oh, yeah. broker will I pick mean, up the phone and say, but maybe not to me because I'm, I'm a capital racer now, but he'll call Vance Maddox or Bob Perry or, you know, anybody and say, hey, I think this is going to happen. Next time you come in D.C., let me walk you through the right. building. Right. You know, I mean, that's, oh, that's the way our business is done in general, yeah. not just with CB. I did half my sales that way. Exactly. So when you know you're protected as a broker, right. you'll treat those clients a little differently than you will if it's just somebody else. Now, if it's an auction, do we see the same deals everyone else does? Yeah. Now, where I think we do have an advantage many times is that we can get more information about the market and the property than is commonly known because mm-hmm. we've got people on the ground all the time. And the property managers and the leasing agents, they know that we're likely to, to hire them. So they're going to give us usually very good information. So let's step back and look yeah. at the industry for a minute, both the brokerage industry and then also the fundraising business, because yeah. you've been in both. Talk a little bit about how the changes have occurred over the last 40 well, years in the business. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, in those 41 years that I've been employed by this firm, which really is probably about eight firms because we've merged, acquired, gone private, gone public, gone private. But I agree, same firm, ultimately. First of all, I haven't been in the brokerage business for 12 years, so right. I'm, I'm out of the picture. I, I mean, I see it, but I'm not on top of it. But clearly, the number one thing that is just very, very apparent is technology-wise is just a completely different world. And when I tell my sons this, they look at me like I'm from the Cro-Magnon era, which for their purposes (laughs) is probably pretty true. But I vividly remember being the resident manager in Tyson's. The resident manager, I'm not talking about when I started. Yes. And the admin manager coming to me and saying, you know, I really think we should get one of these fax machines. And I'm going, fax machine? You think we need it? <laughs> and now, you know, How about I don't know about you, phones? but... <laughs> remember mobile phones? I do remember days? mobile phones, John. My first mobile phone probably was about like this, and I had to pick a, <laughs> stick it next to my This head. is the size of a notebook here. <laughs> exactly. <we're> talking. <laughs> <laughs> it weighed about two and a half pounds. Anyway, oh yeah, vividly recall. Well, partially because I was always traveling. Right. I mean, right. in all these jobs, I was right. traveling and having to use a payphone. I'll tell you one thing. Having these things is really handy. I mean, I could go on and on, but being able to sit like this, like we are in the room and we could be doing all our emails without having had the computer in front of us is huge. Well, email didn't exist when we started. No. I vividly recall Ray Torto telling me when I was in Los Angeles, hey, if you guys had your email up and running, we could be communi- communicating via email. And I thought huh, wow, that's pretty cool. We could do that. <laughs> I mean, that was, again, probably 1990, 92, so something like that. the other business that's 
obviously exploded, as you suggested, computers, data. Yeah. And back when we started at CB, the data was, you know, was dialing per dollars. Basically, you called office owners to find out when their leases, you know, if they tell you or you'd find yeah. out yeah. Get when the leases matured. And then a guy by the name of Andy Florence wrote a thesis at, at Princeton uh, about true. how to do, take the computer industry and apply it to managing yeah. sta- sales, co-star. He'd be a good guy for you to interview. Maybe so. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, because in way back when, like when my wife was in the research department, you know, they went out and surveyed individual buildings. And that was one of CB's competitive advantages. Right. No one else, I shouldn't say no one else, but relatively few other firms had access to all that information where you could just pull up how many square feet are in downtown DC and how many tenants, you know, all that type of stuff that we view as just basic today. So that's the evolution of brokerage industries, basic communications and data. Yeah, and technology in general. I mean, because that's just a different world. I mean, we were almost closer to the Civil War (laughs) than we were to today. I mean, that's embarrassing. But if you think about it, this is a complete tangent. But I remember reading that between 18, like when Lewis and Clark did their expedition in 1802, and the Civil War is... You had to, somebody had to get on a horse and ride to go tell somebody what, what had happened. And during the Civil War, you had, you know, actual t- telegraphs. telegraphs. So, so somebody 10 miles away would know what was going on. But, and if you think about it, think of the difference that made. Anyway, Well, in 10 bit. years, you could think about something and somebody's going to know what you're thinking about. Yeah, I know. That's a little scary. It is a little scary. Also, the flying cars and stuff like that. <laughs> Yes. You and I are going to date ourselves here very rapidly <laughs> if we haven't already. So talk about the fundraising business now. So you've talked about brokerage. A well, bit. you know, I did a lot of it. I wasn't a technically a fundraiser, but when from 88 to 95, when I was with what was, this is the precursor of CBRE Global Investors, which was basically cap, known as CBRE, CB Capital Management, I did quite a bit of fundraising, but I wasn't purely a fundraiser. I mean, I and Scott Tracy were the two guys running the group. And again, it was a much, much smaller firm in a much different environment. And a lot to really get established. We weren't raising funds, but Scott, me, and Vance Maddox in particular were going out to investors trying to persuade them to consider deals if they met certain criteria. Because we couldn't, we didn't have a track. I mean, the firm so didn't have a track record. You didn't have a, sort, a, a bucket of capital. No. So you were just. We did from deals. Sears, but after Sears sold us, right. that was gone. So, so early on, placement of deals directly. It was almost, it was like being a middleman. The only difference is, I mean, we were going to be the manager. You know, we were going to run the property right. and all that right. type of stuff. Right. But it was uh, quite different. It was quite challenging. We did build up to where we were raising actual funds. Now they weren't huge at all by today's standards, partially because this is early '90s. You know, it wasn't exactly a great time. But for example, we started a mortgage fund that today, I mean, at the time, because there was very little mortgage capital. You remember early '90s, and literally, it just went. We went out to investors. We used Torto Wheaton, and they we basically, in effect, said to investors, "Look, you give us money, we're going to get." And I forget what the returns were, but you know, hundreds of hundreds of basis points over Treasuries because. We said, there's no competition. We can get the most risk-free deals, be in the primary position, no competition, 
and we're going to be making, we should make lots of money. The answer was we did. Again, compared to today, it was relative. Once you raise the money, it was easy. Easy is always the wrong term, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) There just wasn't much competition. And then we ultimately got, this was after I left, but we ultimately got a great offer for the whole mortgage business and we sold it. Maybe that was a mistake, but you know, it was, it made a big returns for our investors overall. Well, you know, it's interesting. The technology and, and the explosion of real estate in general mm-hmm. as, a, as an investment medium is, is, is amazing. Let's shift back yes. again to your family. You moved back to Washington in... 90, beginning of 95. 95. And you had two boys. They've grown now to be productive members of our industry. Yes. So talk about your sons a little bit. Well, I could talk about them both forever. <laughs> as like a typical dad. And how I they did, got into real estate. Why? You know, they might have a different take, but I really don't think I pushed real estate on them at all. Now, they heard a lot of chatter about it because, sure. you know, I'd be talking about it or I'd, they'd hear me talking on the phone or friends of mine, you know, we'd be talking about deals and stuff like that. You have to ask them to get the, the real take. But my oldest son, Paul, went to Vanderbilt. There's always a story there, too. He told me when he was graduate, when he graduated, he went to St. Albans, both boys went to St. Albans. When he graduated from St. Albans, I said, Paul, you know, I really think you should look at Yale and maybe Harvard, Princeton, et cetera, you know, other schools like that. And he goes, no, I just want to look at Vanderbilt. And I was like, why do you just want to do that? And not that I have anything against Vanderbilt. Did he Vanderbilt. do well in school? Yeah, he did very well. I, th- I think he personally would have got, he was a very good athlete. He'd been on a very good baseball team. He was on Arlington County was the state champions. He was on that. I mean, he, and he was a very good athlete overall, good football player. And in my mind, he certainly could have played Ivy League baseball and football. And, you know, who knows? He might disagree on that. And I said, Paul, you really should look at these schools. I don't care if you don't go, but look at them. No, no, don't want to do it. Now, I don't know if that's because I'd talked too much about Yale. Frankly, my <laughs> wife had talked much more about the University of Kansas than we ever did about Yale. But that's besides the fact. And all of the kids' clothing was all Kansas. It was never Yale stuff. That's funny. But that's a whole other story. And uh, he said, no, I just want to apply to Vanderbilt. It's the only school I'm going to apply to. And I thought, okay. You know, as a parent, you go, this is nutty. I said, okay, Paul, what's going to happen if you don't get in? He said, well, I'm gonna, I'll work for a year, and then I'll go. And I did Uncle George have any impact in that? Well, decision? yes, and then also Cousin William, who was, this is my nephew, William, two or three years older than Paul, was at Vanderbilt at the time. And I think Paul saw that the social life at Vanderbilt was not lacking. That's mm-hmm. my impression. Okay. And my brother, George, I think, gave an impression that he had had an active social life when he'd been at Vanderbilt, too. No surprise. No surprise. And... Probably the impression that Paul had from my sister and me, who both went to Yale, was that we had worked quite hard at Yale, which was a true statement. So my guess is Paul <laughs> said, where would I rather be spending four That's years? Funny. Vanderbilt looks good. Well, anyway, in my mind at the time, I said, Paul, I think you're making a mistake. But, and I'm telling you this as another parent. You can either go, no, you have to apply to wherever. Okay. And you have to do this. And the kid, if he doesn't like it, it's going to hate you for the rest of his life. But if he applies, let's say he applies to Vanderbilt, gets in and hates it. Who's he going to blame? Right. Himself. And I was like, you know, Vanderbilt, if he'd said he wanted to do something really wacky, I would have slammed the door. Right. But going to Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt's a great school, blah, 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 blah. I was totally comfortable with him going there. 
anyway, he, uh, he goes to Vanderbilt. His first quarter, whatever it is, first semester grades were not of a level that I had anticipated. So he and I, I think he wouldn't mind me telling this, but had a private conversation where I said, I really am not keen on me spending $55,000 a year for you to work on your social skills. <laughs> Either get to work or do something else. To his great credit, he got his act together, graduated, I think, magna cum laude at, oh, at Vanderbilt. Goodness. Worked, I went to, I mean, I'll, I'll skip over some details. He worked for J.P. Morgan for a year in corporate finance, I think. Worked at Morgan Stanley as an intern and went to MIT to get his degree in real estate. And I told him at the time, I said, Paul, listen, Bill Wheaton started it. I know Bill Wheaton well. It's a great program. But don't you want to get an MBA and leave your options open? Because if you pick real estate, I mean, you're kind of picking it and that's it. And he goes, no, I know what I want to do. And it's real estate. I was like, okay, great. He went to that. He worked at Carlisle. And then he's been off working with Neil Gumbin and... uh, well, I David. also want to thank you for your confidence in me helping him in his early in his career, too. Oh, thanks. Yeah. You were great to, great to talk I to enjoyed him. You know, talking to him. young folks need people to talk to beyond right. just their parents. That's right. The parents, you know, they're out there. They're, they're, their credibility, at least in my case, my credibility with my kids is very low. <laughs> Same with mine. <laughs> so they need to talk to other people. And I think almost the greatest gift as a parent you can do is to introduce them to other people. And I was very lucky, yet again, in that being in the real estate business, I knew a lot of people. Of course. And not that I'm calling them up. And and actually, this is one really good lesson I've told a lot of kids is you don't ask somebody, hey, can I get a job, Mr. Co? Because he's going to go, I'm I'm available in the year uh, (laughs) 20,000. But if you say, Mr. Co, my name is such and such. And my father, so and so, said, would you mind giving me some advice or telling me what you do? Right. Well, most times people go, well, yeah, sure, I'll talk to you. And then you do, and then you build up. And, and then you say, well, Mr. Coe, do you know anybody else in the real estate business? Well, I don't know, but there's this firm, JBG, there's Coldwell Banker, there's CB, you know, there's blah, 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 blah. Right. Before you know it, you're networking. That's the network. And a lot of people just don't realize that. And I frankly didn't know it at first, but I did do that myself. Anyway, I've told my kids, you have to network one way or another. So Paul now, as he's married... His wife has a very successful business called Tucker Nuck, uh, mm-hmm. along with her sister and now 25 other employees. My son, Billy, is married to Emily, who is a partner of Maddie at that business at mm-hmm. Tucker Nuck, small world as usual. Both of them went to NCS, not a coincidence there. And then Billy, he went to Gettysburg Division Three school. He was a very good lacrosse player. He became an All-American in college and Division Three All-American. And then when he got out, he's basically, he went to work for Suffolk Construction in Boston and then worked for Clark here in D.C. He now works for a firm called J.R. Lynch, who, J.R. Lynch, whom you, I'm sure, know, but also who went to Sidwell and who was, if I recall correctly, silver, silver medal winner in Olympics a few years ago. That's correct. So he's been there several months. But I'm really, really blessed in many ways both boys live in the D.C. area. Both their wives are from D.C., so we get a chance to see them pretty regularly. And Paul having a grandson it was a lot of fun. That's but great. why they both decided to get into real estate, you'd have to ask them, but I think they've enjoyed it. My nephew, William, also, the guy who went to Vanderbilt, he's also in the real estate business. Oh. 
and he worked up until recently for David Webb here at CBRE. And uh, anyway, now he's off on it with another firm. Well, Cab, it's clear from our discussions today that you learned a lot from your father about being a good person, mm-hmm. and it really passed on not through you to your children because of what they've done and how they've accomplished, because obviously they emulated you and your career. They may, as you say, they may have a different story, but I have a strong feeling that your career had a lot of influence on their future, yeah. which, is, which is awesome. I want to tell you one other quick story. Okay. Remember how I, sure. and you cut me off when we need to, but I, you know how I told you that I said there's different paths to success? Yes. And of course, who can define success? But as I told you, when I was at St. Albans, I struggled and struggled and struggled with French. I mean, I finally did well when I had a tutor, which basically meant I worked even longer hours on that. I had an opportunity after my junior year at Yale to go to Denmark as an exchange student. And I had always assumed I was just lousy with languages. But when I went to Denmark, uh, and there's a whole story there too, but I lived with two, I was put with two farm families before going to a school that I guess would be the equivalent of a community college. They have a different system, but something like that. But it was in Danish. But I thought, you know, hey, this will be fun. Well, I learned Danish, I think, remarkably fast. And I still regard myself as pretty fluent. And I mean, I'm going to go there in a a week uh, to visit more friends. And it's just funny. When I was sitting in a classroom trying to learn French, impossible. When I'm in an immersion environment where people around me, there's something to me, I love to dance as an aside, and there's something about the rhythm in a language that if you hear people speaking it to you, you start to pick up the rhythms. So to me, one of the things that taught me was just because you fail, 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 which I did in French, it doesn't mean there's not another pathway. And I think now, even though I don't, I don't pretend to speak French well, I think I speak French much better than I did when I graduated from St. Helens. <laughs> well, that has a, what you just said is a theme probably for your life in some ways. Yeah. Because you've immersed yourself in your career and you just got into it. I mean, the, the idea that the, as a sales manager, you had no experience, but you just listened and you were willing to help. I mean, that's a really key thing. Yeah. And you immersed yourself in the environment, which is interesting. I think that's true. I think that is true. And again, I'm sure I was not the best sales manager in the world, but I think if you approach, especially when you're supervising people, if you approach people along the line of helping them as opposed to telling them what to do, generally, they're going to be more receptive. Granted, there's always circumstances that don't work out so well, but that was certainly my experience. And I've had a wonderful, you know, I view myself as an incredibly lucky person and my whole experience with Coldwell Banker, CB, has been over, overwhelmingly positive. And frankly, if there's somebody, if there's some of the names who helped me along the way that I've left out, then I deeply apologize because there are lots and lots of people who helped me. So there's a final question I want to ask, yeah. Deb, and it's one I've asked others. If you could post a billboard for millions to see, what would it say? You know, John, I don't know. I saw that question that you sent me. I I really don't know what it would be, but I will say one thing. (laughs) I think, you know, what Gary Rappaport said about trying to be a good man, A, that's important. But B, I also think that even though it might sound very exclusive, the real estate business and 
the environmental world need not be mutually exclusive. I don't know if I could put it on a billboard, but I think it's, uh, it's up to us of, this gener- of our generation, but also our children, to help take care of the earth for future generations. And that sounds probably way too hokey in a way, but I do think that the natural world has much to teach us, and it's important to incorporate that as much as we can in our daily lives. Well, Cap, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it very much speaking to this and sharing your, your lessons and your career stories with us today. Well, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>